There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia swallowed through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. And if you're a regular listener of the show, I bet you know exactly what I'm about to say next. Not to disappoint you, my name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective, a trans-Tasman podcast network, meaning shows from Australia and New Zealand, by and for the climate community. Now, the reason that might be quite familiar is I've been saying it week in, week out, for going on three and a half years, which is one of those kind of blink-and-you'll-miss-it weird realization moments of, oh, wow, we've been going a while. That's well over a thousand days. And we're coming up on 300 episodes on the feed. So for the podcast nerds out there, it's getting to the point where if you scroll back in Apple Podcasts on your phone, the Apple Podcasts app itself has a limit of 300 episodes. Meaning, thank goodness, you won't be able to see episodes 1, 2, 3, a lot of those early days. We've come a long way since then and hopefully gotten a lot better. And today, the output... The amazing storytelling happening on the Climactic Collective and featured here on the Climactic feed, well, I couldn't be more proud of it. But it's with great appreciation that starting next weekend, I get to take a little bit of time off from being the publisher of Climactic. I'll get to spend some time going back to being what I've been for even longer than the publisher of Climactic, a podcast fan. I'll get to look forward to a new episode every week and not know what's coming out. And that'll be a thrill. But I'll also be spending that time partially producing a few shows. There's a couple shows returning for second seasons, and I'm really happy to have jumped on their team, helping them deliver fantastic climate-engaged stories. I'll also be spending that time helping a few new shows join the Climactic Collective, working on some behind-the-scenes logistics stuff for the network, and also planning a big new project for next year. I won't announce it yet, it's very much still in the works, but I will just tease that if you're climate-engaged and you like podcasts, you're going to like this. But enough about my little break from Climactic. What are you going to hear today? Well, I've got something fantastic for you, and this is actually one of the shows that I'm helping produce. This is Nourishing Matters to Chew On, and this is Season 2 And for any aspiring or current podcasters out there, I'd highly recommend that seasonal approach to your show. It lets you take time off, rethink, refactor the show, and then come back even stronger for future seasons. And that's definitely what Nourishing Matters has done. This is episode two of season two, and this is a great story that just so happens to be about soil and regenerating the earth and combating climate change. But let none of the seriousness of those topics take away from just how great a story you're about to hear. Because within the soil, there's these tiny little microscopic organisms, and they make up a cast of characters like you'd expect in a Pixar movie, or out of a sci-fi film, or you know one of my particular favorites, the Expanse series of books and TV shows. You're going to hear how amazing fungus is, but not like in an abstract, oh, isn't that cool way. You're going to hear stats, like how in a teaspoon of soil, there's enough hyphae, tiny little filaments, you could make a line hundreds of kilometers long. Nourishing Matters is hosted by Anthea Fawcett, and she's a wonderful interviewer. She really preps, she knows her stuff, she has a great time with her guests, and they have a lot of fun with her. So I won't say anything else, I'll just say, this is going to be a fantastic listen. I hope you're going to enjoy it half as much as I did when I listened super closely Uh, to do an edit pass on this. You're really going to enjoy it, and I really hope you come and check out Nourishing Matters to Chew On. There are new episodes weekly, or thereabouts, and an entire season one to dig into if you can't wait for a new episode. So come and check it out at Climactic.fm. Just click on the Nourishing Matters to Chew On show art, and you'll find all the episodes there. All right, over to Anthea to take it from here. And hey, you'll all hear me again soon. I'm just going to take a few weeks off from behind the mic. 
Enjoy. We do. We look to the, to, you know, to the stars, and it's so exciting. You know, it's I read about it all the time. You know how exciting it is that we're gonna, you know, we can travel into space, or we can do this and that. And we look down, and we're so bored. It's like, oh, someone's just, you know, someone's germinated a seed and you know, grown a cabbage. Oh, how boring! That's actually what's fueled humanity. That's what's fueled civilization. That's what bred culture and built us into the, into what we are today. So it might seem really boring, but it's actually really important. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm speaking with Matthew Evans and Sadie Crestman, the creators and operators of Fat Pig Farm in Tasmania, and co-authors or collaborators in arms, I'm guessing, of Matthew's latest book, Soil, the incredible story of what keeps the earth and us healthy. Hello again, Matthew and, and Sadie. Great to meet you. Thanks so much for having us. And, and Sadie, I asked her to be a co- co-author um, on, the, on the book and she <laughs> said that sounds, she's just way too interested in soil and way less interested in writing about stuff. So, um, yes, lots of inspiration, lots of great stuff from her, but um, not, she's, she doesn't want the co-author credit, do you? No, I most certainly don't want the co-author <laughs> credit. I'm a really great <laughs> founding board and I want to have no responsibility. <laughs> I love it. All ideas, no responsibility. That's fantastic. Mm. Um, thanks, thanks so much for taking time in the middle of a, no doubt, busy day, week, winter. Um, how's the farm and the business looking? Soil springing at the moment. Oh, it's it's amazing. The farm is so beautiful at the moment. So so we're in winter, but the um the, we passed the shortest day. So I, my job is to watch grass grow, and I can actually see it growing in the sunlight outside <laughs> my window. Every blade of grass sucking in a photon photons of sunlight and turning it into sugar. Like it's just amazing to to see the farm. And and the business is fine thanks um it'd be better when the rest of the country isn't in lockdown when you run a tourism hospitality business um but we're not um closed like like most hospitality businesses um well yeah i guess in sydney at the moment yeah no no hectic hectic times indeed but on to much happier and brighter things i just so loved soils the book It's, it's it's joyful it's packed with stacks of facts and curious tales to help us really see smell feel and taste soil in really creative more informed ways and it packs a loving but really powerful punch for pretty much anyone who grows food or eats really to better care for soil, for our and planetary health and food futures in a changing climate. It's really a fabulous roller coaster of a read, a sort of mix of Alice in Regeneration Land meets Dr. Carl and Costa, great scientists, quacks and visionary gardeners and farmers of the world, and Frenchman Stéphane Le Foll, who at the Paris Climate Summit in 2015 touted the idea that an extra 0.4% organic carbon into the soil each year might radically enable us to garden ourselves away from runaway global warming. So with that characteristically, Anthea, long intro, Matthew, <laughs> lead us in and tell us about what inspired you to write this wonderful book and why now? I think I was inspired to write a book about soil when I, well, two, two things. One, growing food and realizing that every year that we tend to garden, the food gets better tasting. So that the impact of our actions on the flavor of food, and then the the realization that soil isn't inert, that it's actually a living, breathing superorganism beneath our feet. And, um, and that, that as growers, uh, we, we can nourish uh, this entire ecosystem um, uh, that nourishes us. Yeah, that that's so fantastic. A direct, veris, a direct visceral sort of learnt lesson that you just wanted to share and celebrate. That's just that's really a beautiful uh, 
source of it all, really. I had sort of wondered if it perhaps kicked off in 2019 in the midst of drought and dust storms. Was that also a bit of a source of inspiration for it? Uh, yeah, look, it actually, it did kick off in 2019. I guess the, the, the idea of writing about soil, I, I'd been fascinated, well, we'd been fascinated by soil for a number of years since I guess we discovered that, you know, a single teaspoon of soil can have more living things in it than, than there are humans on earth. And, and that sort of blew our minds and made us look at soil in a different way. But um, uh, I was actually touring for a book um, on eating meat, which is about the ethics of eating meat. And, and I realised a lot of the topics I was covering sort of fed back into this great love and passion of ours, which was soil. And, um, and then I started to wonder about our soils and looking at, you know, um, the amount of soil that was being uh, blown away, I guess, in those massive dust storms at the end of the drought um, and wondering, you know, if this is the bit that does all the world's growing um, uh, and, and it has this amazing ecosystem, what happens when it blows away? What happens when it washes away? What, what are we doing to soil and how are we caring for it, uh, the thing that nourishes and cares for us? Yeah, and, and, and 2019, like at the end of that hideous drought, you know, you just look across the landscape and it just all looks so hydroscopic and dead and just so vulnerable, didn't it? Mm. Yeah. 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 And I think that's, that's the thing that soil is generally invisible and it should be. Uh, that's the whole point. Um, when you can see soil, it's struggling or dying. And so as soon as you see it um, exposed uh, in, in, in dry times and, and times perhaps when we, we have maybe um, uh, not only is it dry, we, we've denu denuded it of, of, of living plants. Um, and then to see it airborne um, is, a, is a shock. And, uh, and, and I, guess that, I guess that drives home um, this idea of soil and, uh, you know, what is it, where is it from, where should it be? Probably not blowing over um, onto the glaciers of New Zealand from dust storms in New South Wales. <laughs> um, and and um, what have we done to soil? Have, have we looked after it and can we do better? Yeah. Yeah. And Matthew, we met, um, I think, when you were on that tour at the uh, Scone Writers Festival in March last year. And, you know, everything was looking green and beautiful. But, you know, the other part of the picture or the story of soils that you helped tell around fertilisers and other, um, I know when we were at Scone, you know, there were bright green dams and ponds and no one was allowed to drink the water. So it's all interconnected, as your fabulous book tells us. Um, okay, so soils is, as you say, for anyone who eats, but Matthew, did you or do you have particular audiences or readers in mind? It, it, it has quite an international feel and pitch. You draw really widely from international stories and experts as well as some closer to home. Tell me about who and what you hope soils will especially help nourish or reach. We got really excited about soil. And, and when I was, you know, it, well, even before I started researching the book, so, you know, I would swap soil facts and tell each other amazing stuff that was happening in soil. And when I looked around, I, I wanted to read a book that celebrated soil and talked about the incredible things. And the only things that I could find really are children's books that talk about the, the wondrous nature of soil. And once you get above that, it starts to get a bit dry or it's for really serious gardeners and farmers. And what I wanted to read and so what I thought would be good to write is a book that is for everybody and, uh, and, and how to frame that. And I wanted it to be a celebratory book of the beautiful things, the incredible things, the magical things, because soil's in trouble um, globally. So I wanted to write about it in a way that made us care about it and um, to care about its fate. And, yeah, it is, it is written... Um, I guess in a in a to, to maybe appeal to pe people from an international audience because I wanted to look at the big picture of soil. This isn't the book that you buy if you want to um, know what to do with your slightly acidic clay soil, um, you know, and the cation exchange isn't working and you haven't got enough yeah. iron in it in your particular part of the world. You'll find someone in your local garden centre that probably help you with that or a gardening book. This is a book about big picture stuff. What's great about soil? What, where, where are we going with it um, in Australia and globally? And what are we doing to, to make it better? And what have people done historically to make it better? Because humans are so good at looking after soil, but we can also be so um, uh, bad at, well, you know, uh, uh, poor at looking after soil if we don't recognise it as a, um, for what it is. I think the other reason that the book has a slight international flavour is much of the research is done internationally. Um, there is very little baseline research on Australian soils. Like we know that the organic matter has essentially halved since European settlement in Australia, but we don't know much else about 
what used to be in the soil before uh, European-style farming uh, came to this country. Um, and there's still very little, I mean, I presume it's changing now in terms of research in Australia. No, Australian soils are pre- very poorly researched. Mm. And um, and so for considering we've such, got such fragile um, uh, impoverished soils, you know, we, it's an old continent, so it's had a lot of leaching of, of things over the years. And there's very little research done into um, how Aboriginal people fed themselves for 60,000 years and didn't ruin soil and to uh, and, and how they managed it and what the, the repercussions were of, you know, mosaic burning and fire stick farming. Um, yeah, so, so you have to go internationally. And, look, I think, I think the great story of soil is it's, you know, it, 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 it's sort of the same story everywhere. The soil, um, you know, it might differ from every little person's corner of the, of the globe, but the story of soil and what matters to soil is the same whether you're in the Sudan, whether you're in, um, you know, Argentina or whether you're in um, southern Tasmania. Yeah, no, I love that. That's a great summary. I mean, the challenges or the things that are really damaging soils in many ways are what some people call food under fossil capitalism, aren't they? And um, those big drivers are a bit monoculturally everywhere um, and soil is precious everywhere. So, so thanks for that. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I loved the way you took the helicopter view and had the big paradigm, you know, capital P paradigm and political change type uh, sort of uplifting possibilities in view, um, but also the sort of small P every, everyday things that people as food citizens and soil makers can do. So uh, congratulations. That's, that's, a, that's a big ambition to straddle and, and to do so well. Um, I really enjoyed how you launch into the book, literally from the bounce, the rich springy soil of the Tarkeen rainforest, so rich in humus and incredible diverse life underground. It gives such a lush, visceral image that, that contrasts just so starkly with hard, lifeless, neglected dirt. And about half of your book then digs in to explore and to explain the incredible diversity of life, webs and interactions that are integral to healthy soil and food and people. And as you've already said, there are uh, more living things in a teaspoon of healthy soil than there are humans on earth. And the human gut is itself one of the most microbially dense ecosystems on earth whose diversity and health is linked directly to soils and to a whole spectrum of physical and mental health conditions. Healthy soils or the chocolate cake, <laughs> I loved how you described it like that, um, makes, feels to me like this incredible extended family where there are lots of characters, interdependencies, and everyone plays a different part. Some travel widely, but things can really unravel when someone gets hurt. Um, can we spend some time digging in to talk about this incredible cast of soil life characters, who they are and what they do to make soils live and sing? There's the matriarch, the plants, and, and so many, many more. <laughs> um, so let's just have a, a wide-ranging conversation about, you know, all things beautiful and alive in soil. Can you tell us about, let's let's talk about some of the most intriguing soil characters and their interactions that you've met. I've got a few favourites, but I'll let you lead off. <laughs> yeah, look, I think one of the ones that strikes me um, is, I think, things called nematodes. Now, nematodes are... Um, everywhere. For every um, human on earth, there are 60 billion nematodes. And um, I didn't even know they existed. About eight years ago, never heard of them, didn't know what they were, you know, couldn't couldn't have, ha- had no clue that they were around. They live in and on us, and, they live, and 90% of them live in soil. And um, uh, these are um, like tiny little microscopic worms. And they, they, they have, they're essentially an ecosystem engineer. So they work underground to um, consume other things, to, to um, uh, move through the soil and aerate it a little bit. And, and as they do so, they, they make things um, available to plants. And so they're, they're so, there's a lot of the things in the book, Bloom, you know, really hard for me to comprehend. And I, I, I like to put things in a form that we can understand. So when, I, when you say there's 60 billion nematodes for each human on earth, it's a little bit hard to gauge how, how many that is, but they're very small. But if you link them together, um, they can stretch a long way. So you imagine a little conga line of nematodes. If you took all of those um, nematodes around the world um, and linked them together, you, you, you would actually end up with a conga line of nematodes that goes outside, um, you know, heads past the moon and past the sun and outside the solar system and then keeps going to our nearest, you know, the second nearest sun, Alpha Centauri. And it can get there for, for about four light years away and back. That's how if you linked all the nematodes on earth together, that's how far it would stretch. And so those kind of things, you know, th- th- there's something in soil that, that, that 
um, you know, they, they, they represent 70% of all multicellular creatures on earth, nematodes, right? So they, they, they're kind of dominant. Um, and yet I'd never heard of them, can't see most of them. Most of them are invisible uh, and they can, they can be so small, but stretch so far, um, I think is one of the great, um, great stories of soil because we have to, we have to tell the stories of soil. You can't see that these things with your naked eyes. You need to be able to tell the story and, and, and appreciate that every you know, every time you take a step on soil, there are, there are so many things under each footfall. Mm, if you can't see it, you can't love it and you won't care for it. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> Let, let's, let's look into more of these amazing characters. I had never heard of and particularly loved uh, the idea of tilth. And 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 glamalin was that how I pronounce it? Glamalin. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, uh, I think I'll get Sadie to to um, talk a little bit about this. But I, I did actually interview Dr. Chris Nichols from the USA, who was um, who did a PhD the year after um, the, the the substance was recognised. And it's actually glomalin, apparently, is how they uh, it, it's supposed to be pronounced. And I had uh, no idea how it'd be pronounced because we say so, you nice know, to call call it glomalin mm-hmm. um, because. <laughs> We'd only ever read it yes, and never heard yes. it um, talk about it. This is, you know, I'll let Sadie talk about um, um, uh, glomalin and tilth. Um, yeah, so glomalin is, I, I love the idea of glomalin because because it, it actually acts as a metaphor for everything we don't know about soil. Um, so it was only discovered in 1996 and yet it accounts for an enormous percentage of the carbon that is stored in soil. Mm. And what it is is that um, certain kinds of fungi excrete glomalin in order to protect their hyphae. So their hyphae are the tendrils that go out into the soil in order to break down the minerals. Um, They break down the minerals into a form that the plants can then take up. And to protect the hyphae, they secrete this sticky glycoprotein called glomalin. Eventually the hyphae dies because its job is done and the fungi goes off and looks for some food somewhere else. But the glomalin stays in the soil and it acts, it pulls together all the little particles of dirt and sticks them together into what are called aggregates. And it's in these aggregates, which is where all the carbon is stored, where all the little microbes can live, it's where the air pockets are, where nutrients can be stored in such tiny little air pockets that only fungi can get in there in order to feed on them and return them to plants. So glomalin is like the glue that holds soil together. And we didn't know about it until 1996, which I find just extraordinary for something that plays such a hugely important part in maintaining the structure of the soil underneath our feet. And the soil structure is hugely important for plants to be able to get uh, the nutrients that they need and to grow well. Yeah, no, it's just amazing. And then you know, related to it, and the, it was just a lovely image, and of course, the beautiful storytelling of Matthew about those beautiful hyphal. Th- I'm probably mispronouncing that too. Hyphal threads. That's a that's a word I never. I, I changed my. Oh, pre- I love that. Hyphal. You know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, but but that is just so visceral as well. So you might think, oh, I'm just pottering around in my little compost heap or my healthy little, you know, one square meter garden in my backyard, wherever it is in the country or in the city or wherever um but what you do to feed those fungi and that glomalin and the hyphal threads as Matthew in the book says you know they can go 2,000 times as far as they are or their length Mm -hmm. and so they can reach you know hundreds of meters maybe even kilometers away is that right Matthew yeah so they don't stretch out um uh too far from the roots of the plant most of the time if they have an association with the plant so uh, I'll frame it like this if you have a um you know like an acre of wheat so the roots of that wheat, you know, you all the fine um, hairs on the roots uh, of the wheat, they can they can stretch. Uh, if you link them all together, they would stretch around the globe, which is pretty amazing in, in and of itself. But the fungi, so so fungus, we tend to think of it as, you know, fungus as mushrooms. That's the fruiting body. But that's only a tiny portion of the fungus. Most of the fungus is this fine threads that stretch through the soil. And those threads can stretch 2,000 times further than the roots of the plant. So right. a, a fungal a hyphal thread is about one sixtieth of the width of a root hair. So they're invisible to the naked eye. You can have 10 kilometers of hyphal threads in a teaspoon of soil. So they're tiny, 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 but can stretch a long way. But they don't stretch 
you know, 2,000 metres from the, from the plant, they, they go <laughs> through the soil in a three-dimensional way. Mm. So they can spread way further than the, the plant roots go out. They double back on themselves. They double back on themselves. So they, they form yeah. like a ball of wool rather yeah. than a yeah. long yeah. highway. And they're, and they're quite amazing. I mean, like the fungi have, they have this incredible thing. So those little tiny microscopic worms, the nematodes, fungi have this capacity to set up little nets um, where they can trap high, uh, um, nematodes and then extract all the nitrogen out of them. They can, they can lasso them. They create these little loops in their structure. And then when a nematode squeezes through, they um, fatten the hyphae, which strangles the nematode. And then they suck all of the nutrients out of the, the nematode and can feed that to a plant or use it in its own structure. And so there's this beautiful, amazing um, thing going on in the soil um, where all this, there's, there's so much going on under the soil. Yeah, so the so this amazing structure under the soil. So it's a bit of a bloodbath down there, and you know, lots of things kind of eat each other. But then you also have this um, cooperation as well between microbes. So between bacteria, which are single-celled organisms, archaea, a similar sort of single-celled organism, protists, um, the nematodes, algae, fungi. Um, there, there are all these different things living in in soil, and they work sometimes in competition and sometimes in concert. Um, and what they do is they they create soil structure they create um, uh, food for plants and the plants in return feed those um, things under the soil with sugars that they create out of um, uh, through photosynthesis now that was another lovely word i hadn't heard before exudates <laughs> which are the beautiful sugars and proteins is it that that the plants feed into the soil yeah so i mean i guess we hadn't really in the process of writing this book, Sony used to talk, and I would talk about um, how to frame uh, what happens with soil. So soil and plants coexist. They need each other. They can't exist separately for any length of time. And, and what a plant is able to do is um, they're able to create sugars out of thin air. So they take the, the, the sun's energy, photons of sun's energy, and they use that energy to take carbohydrate, carbon dioxide out of the air and use water um, as well, and they make carbohydrate. They essentially make sugars out of thin air, and they use some of that sugar in their own structure. And they, but they also feed some of those sugars to the things under under the underground. And plants essentially farm microbes at their around their base, so they are constantly talking and man to and managing and communicating with um, things under the soil, maybe with other plants as well through the, through the fungal fungi. Um, uh, but this is incredible thing that happens where a plant can exude, dribble out, essentially um, uh, up to a hundred thousand uh, different chemicals is the current estimate. A hundred thousand different chemicals that a plant can dribble out through its roots um, into the soil to um, communicate, to feed the microbes, because the, the microbes like us need need sugar. They need energy in digestible form, and that comes from the plant. And in return, all those microbes find what the plant needs. So the plant might say, well, I need phosphorus. And, and the fungi says, well, I know where I can get phosphorus, or I know where I can get nitrogen, and um, I'll go and strangle a nematode and get the nitrogen for you. And this is a beautiful <laughs> thing that's happening un underground. And we're only beginning to, 98% like of what lives in soil we, is still unknown to science. We know a lot, but we've still got a lot to learn. That's oh, fascinating. And that's, that's every Everything that's going on underground but of course a lot of what's going underground is going on underground is having really direct and obviously powerful influences in the atmosphere it was news to me for example that bacteria in the atmosphere is pretty key to the genesis of rain uh, and so it's quite place specific where that bacteria might be being released from healthy soil to enable rain is that right yeah so that's that's one of those amazing things that when we were um, so, you know, we talk about the book and I go, I've just heard, that, you know, that, that soil might be the genesis of rain. And she's like, yeah, as if. And and, <laughs> and, and, and pretty much I'd thought as if. So I, that, I went down a rabbit hole to try and find that. So, what, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's sort of astonishing, but it shouldn't be astonishing. But the fact that um, we used to think that, um, you know, that's, that soil microbes or microbes generally, so bacteria and other single-celled organisms, um, microscopic organisms, um, you know, they'd live in the soil, but why would they be in the atmosphere? And um, so uh, a guy who was interested in, it was actually a plant disease and plant microbes, but um, these microbes spend some of their time in soil. Um, he thought, uh, he, he was trying to research why a, a, a field of wheat all got a disease at the same time. The soil didn't have the, this microbe in it. 
Um, the water didn't have the microbe in it. The seeds didn't have the microbe on it. But suddenly this disease that came from this microbe um, appeared on this wheat field all at once. And he tried to work out why. So he, he, he did this crazy thing. I love scientists like this. He, he went up in an aeroplane, stuck his hand out the window, got frostbite <laughs> in the process with an agar plate, a sterile agar plate, and gathered microbes from the, you know, from the upper atmosphere and, and found um, that, that, you know, bred them up and said, well, hang on, here's this, not only, you know, are there microbes, here's the strain of microbe that fell on my wheat field. And he, I think it was the early nineties, late eighties, he postulated that he, 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 he thought that, um, uh, that perhaps uh, microbes could be the genesis of rain and everybody did nothing because they all thought like Sadie and I, and possibly like you, Anthea, um, that's rubbish. That could never happen as if you would have rain forming around uh, microbes. Um, 20, 30 years went by. Some other people went around um, for some reason um, looking at hailstones and found, hang on, there's bacteria at the centre of every single hailstone. Why is that? So then it's, it set off this whole field of research called bioprecipitation, uh, into bioprecipitation, where we now know that most rain on Earth um, is formed when uh, so water vapor has to crystallize and turn into ice uh, um, in in the clouds and it can form around dust but that doesn't happen most of the time most of the time it happens around uh, microbes so bacteria diatoms archaea um, you know uh, fungal spores um, these tiny tiny things that fly up into the atmosphere and and can can become the genesis of rain and we so we we this is a very new field of research um, and what they 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 think is that more um, biologically active landscapes um, have uh, are able to create rain better than um, landscapes where we have impoverished soil and, and aren't as biologically active. Oh, it's just amazing, isn't it? Like there's multiple min inspiration to have life in the soil. Um, now to a topic that I know is very dear to you. Uh, on eating meat and fairly briefly let's talk about methanotrophs because <laughs> we all know everyone loves the beef about beef attacking methane and that's a complex story and we'll be talking about it for many years to come I'm sure and a lot of really great work going on there but that was really exciting too very specific to the atmosphere these things that eat methane tell me about those yeah so methane is a a, a greenhouse gas it's considered to be um, multiple times more warming than than carbon dioxide. And so um, things like cows, ruminants, uh, cows, um, goats, sheep, that um, they when they, they digest grass, um, they ferment it and they, they um, part of the fermentation process, they create methane. And that methane um, for a lot of people is, is considered a, a, a real baddie in the climate change stakes. Um, what was interesting about my research on soil is discovering that, that uh, methane is broken down in the atmosphere. It's most, mostly broken down by sunlight, um, but uh, about 20% is broken down by soil microbes, things in soil that digest methane, methanotrophs. So troph meaning to eat um, uh, methanotrophs. So um, there, are, there, are, there are soil microbes um, uh, that consume methane and Guess what? They do. There's way more of them um, in the paddocks where you have grazing animals. Um, they do better where you don't plough. They do better where you don't add artificial nitrogen. Um, they do better in rotational grazing systems where um, that's a sort of a modern way of moving animals that is, is um, considered you know most regenerative agriculture. Um, uh, practi practitioners use that method, and so we now know that um, there are things in soil that can digest the methane that the cows are emitting, and it. I mean, it's a bit like microbes in clouds. We know that microbes are everywhere. We know that you know, more than half of the cells in our body are, are not us. They're, they're bacteria um, and other microbes. Um, uh, we were born into a world as plants were and as all our other animals were. We were born into a world dominated by microbes. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that there are things in, you know, there are microbes that create rain. It shouldn't come as a surprise that there are things in soil that digest methane because um, we've had methane producing animals around for 20 million years or more. Um, and so uh, there, there is a system for digesting that methane and that is in part um, soil microbes. And, and so, yeah, it's one of these things that the, 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 the arguments about um, or the debate about methane and ruminants and whether they're killing the planet 
is much more nuanced than some people would like to think. Well, we want facts, but we've also got to uh, keep open a sense of awe and wonder for all these things, these questions that we haven't asked before, and, the, and and yet the logic of there being methane-eating organisms near ruminants that have been around for thousands of years makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, and they do better underneath, you know, underneath the mouths. Because um, it's mostly burps um, of from ruminants um, that where the methane comes out, um, they do better. Those those soil microbes do much better if they're underneath the mouths of those animals. So if you take animals and put them in a feedlot, say, or um, you know into a, a shed, um, then then you're not uh, you're not you're not essentially breeding up the things that eat the methane that's produced by the animal. So it's these are self sustaining systems that have been around for a long time. You know, ruminants aren't new to the planet. Um, and, there, and soil and, and uh, ruminants have coexisted for a long time. So there is a system for getting rid of the methane. And we can, um, we can either choose to nourish that system and create more healthy soils that, that can uh, digest even more than the 20% of methane they currently consume or not. But yeah, some interesting new research. There's actually, um, you know, there's plant uh, microbes that consume methane, methane as well. So there are, there are uh, microbes that live on um, the stems and, uh, uh, and leaves of plants that consume methane as well. And that's, a, that's another interesting area of science. But all this is all really new. Like a lot of this stuff is very, very recent. In, um, yeah, knowledge. yeah, and it's complex. And, and, and so asking the questions to, to learn what we can learn from nature and, and how we might augment it is all about choosing systems a bit really, isn't it, and staying open, which leads me into thinking about reductive nutrient profiling of 20th century style agronomy and the Green Revolution, NPK or nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, has fed millions of people around the world. But it's also done deep and really long-lasting damage to soils, landscapes and watersheds. And in some ways, it's a little bit akin to reductive nutrition profiling that focuses mainly on a small group of macronutrients and a few micronutrients. And the way we currently measure and present nutrition data seems to suggest that all foods, however grown, are equal. But I think uh, we'd probably all be inclined to think a little differently. And you persuasively argue in the book that healthy living soils feed into healthier, better tasting more nutrient-dense food in a whole lot of ways that we're only just discovering. Um, would you like to talk about the current state of knowledge from where you both sit, eat and work, uh, that we can draw on to access information about the different nutrient density health profiles of foods grown in different ways? I mean, viscerally, we know food that we grow that's fresh just tastes better. But there's literally more to it, isn't there? And there's more in it, isn't there? Slightly more nuanced than this, uh, because it has a lot to do with variety, the, the variety that we grow as well. But we know that food that is grown in biologically rich, biologically alive soil tastes better than food that is grown with NPK fertilisers in soil that is essentially biologically dead. What's fantastic about that is our taste buds know it too and that we can trust our taste buds so that, you know, if we buy a carrot and it tastes, doesn't taste of anything much or it tastes a bit bitter, probably doesn't, probably not all that good for you versus a carrot that you pull from someone's garden or a biodynamic organic market garden. Um, so you can, you can trust your own taste buds when you're buying vegetables as to whether they are full of nutrition or not full of, full of nutrition. Um, I'm going to throw to Matthew about where the current state of research is because it does get slightly more complicated than that. Thanks. Thanks, Sadie. Yeah. Look, I think um, <laughs> the problem with all of these things is they're inordinately complex. You know, soil, so we don't know 98% of what's in soil. Soil is the genesis of pretty much all our nutrition. And so by definition, you know, we probably don't know um, a lot of what goes into food that we eat in terms of the um, micronutrients and phytochemicals. Where it's headed now, I guess, look, so a lot of the, re the old research on whether nutrient density has changed in food was based on, and you still read research papers like this, it's based on how much vitamin C is there, how much iron is there, you know, how much um, magnesium is there. You know, that's kind of very 1950s, 1920s, science you know we, we've moved on a long way from there we know that food has a lot more in it um, than just you know vitamin c and magnesium and carbohydrate and fat so most of the nutrient density studies don't address that and it's very hard to do it in a historical sense because we didn't know how to measure 
a lot of things that we now know how to measure like um, polyphenols and antioxidants and um, other phytochemicals that are in tiny amounts, but tiny doesn't mean unimportant. They're things that, that are designed that we're designed to consume in the food that we eat that seem to be lacking in um, some of the way of the foods that we eat now because of the way we grow them. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, to be fair to the nutritionists and the 1950s and 20s style science, often they were going after a key nutrient to tackle a very particular disease, weren't they? Like, um, you know, the picture moves on. As you say, Matthew, a whole lot of new thinking around food, whole foods, diets, and about how the cocktail of foods and chemicals actually work in our bodies. And there's a fascinating chapter in your book that's all about this lovely thing, nutritional dark matter. You explain that 99% of what is in food is largely still unknown, that there's up to some 70,000 chemicals, components in our food, many are still to be identified. And among those uh, that have been identified are these things called secondary metabolites, metabolites, chemicals that relate to the interactions that occur as we metabolise food. Things like you've just mentioned, phytochemicals, antioxidants and polyphenols, um, present in tiny amounts but key to how we metabolise and access nutrition and also how food works in our body. Would you like to um, talk about that anymore? The nutritional dark matter fascinates me because um, you still see it, you know, people will talk about nutrition in very simplistic terms without realising that it's, a, it's whole diets, it's, it's, um, it's lifestyle, it's age, gender, genetic diversity. And we know that essentially that humans are supposed to eat food and, and we're supposed to eat a, a wide range of food and we're supposed to eat a wide range of food that has a really complex cocktail of chemical substances in it. I think what's really interesting about nutritional science, it's relatively new as a, as a field, is that it's still trying to comprehend what's in food. So if you eat a, a carrot, the bulk of the carrot is made of starch, essentially. It's sugars that the plant has created through photosynthesis when it makes you know, carbohydrate out of carbon dioxide and water out of thin air. So, but the flavor in that carrot um, is the cocktail of interesting things that the plant has created and that the um, underground ecosystem has created and given to the plant because it's a two-way street. And this lovely, the more biologically active the soil, the more complex array of chemicals the plant produces to, to communicate with the underground ecosystem to feed the underground ecosystem and the more complex array of chemicals and more varied nutrients are fed back to the plant from the underground ecosystem. And so nutritional dark matter, a guy named Barabasi, a scientist named Barabasi, coined the term because it's it's like that uh, in space, you know, it's, it's the gaps, it's the bits between the things we can see. Um, and nutritional dark matter is the same. We kind of focus on about 150 chemicals as being nutrients in a in nutritional sense, and yet there's 70,000 that we know of, and plus their secondary metabolites that have an impact on human health. And it's very hard, for, I guess, nutritional science to keep up. The beautiful thing is, um, is, is as Sadie said, we, we are gifted with the ability to taste the difference. So we are, you know, we have, when you have a more delicious um, peach, when you have a more flavoursome piece of you know, lettuce or, or a nicer, you know, a more complex cabbage that complexity in the soil you you are gifted with this ability to taste the difference but again it shouldn't be a surprise to us that we have this ability if you had to design a system where an animal could tell what it should eat you would give them the ability to um, taste it like like my cows have hairs on their chin they rub the hairs over the grass they know whether to eat it or not uh, and how and they can tell uh, the nutritional density of the grass simply by running the hairs of their chin over it. I can't do that with the hairs on my chin, but I can tell the difference between a, a carrot grown in impoverished soil and good soil when I eat it because I can I can essentially taste it, but it's the smell that I'm picking up really, the difference in the smell, the more complex smell. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And it's, it's your taste buds, as you both have said, but it's also your gut quickly t- t- communicating to your brain too, isn't it? Oh, God. This, yeah, no, and this is where it gets really sort of amazing that, that, that they know that the, you know, a plant grown in that uh, was water stressed um, communicates with your body. It, it passes messages on to your body through your gut in a, in a way that's different to a plant that's not stressed when you eat the, the, you know, the, the, the plant. It's, it's quite amazing. This field of research is, is 
staggeringly exciting and interesting and and daunting um, in that connection between your gut and your brain is, is starting to become very well established but now the connection between the food you eat and how that food was grown how uh, and that connection between your gut and your brain is they're sort of linking all the all the bits together yeah, fascinating mm-hmm. i was going to ask if you'd heard about this new sort of area of nutrition and health studies called food matrices that goes beyond you know simple compounds in simple nutritional labeling it's it's a very new area but it's basically talking about the structure of foods and how what's in them interacts within the food and how we process the food Um, and food matrices like foods take different forms they might be liquids they might be solids they might be whatever they are but the more we process our food before eating it the more we tend to mess the matrix up And, and the matrix is all about the nutritional properties and how we access and process nutrients and so it changes in terms of how different inputs appear across different foods but perhaps that's too convoluted to get into here. I just wanted to flag it. Yeah, no, we, no, we, we don't know that. And to be really honest, like I don't read much about nutrition because I, I tend to find, you know, I, 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 still, I bear a grudge because I, I <laughs> uh, the nutritionist got us to eat margarine in the 70s and I still bear a grudge. Yeah. Um, having to do that. Yeah, yeah. All righty. Um, there's a great book that came out last year. I just thought I'd flag because you might like it. Uh, it's called There's a Zoo in My Poo, and it's a picture book for kids that literally helps them read their health via the form of their poo <laughs> and what they should be aiming for. It's sort of a, a visceral way to see and understand whole foods and diversity in their diets about what healthy poo looks like in the zoo. Uh, sorry, what healthy poo looks like in the loo. Have you, have you come across that? <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's a fantastic book. I love that. I, I, yeah, it's a wonderful book. Oh, good. Your book soils talk about a whole lot of opportunities for reactivating our use of human manure and bodies returning to the soil, but I uh, suggest everyone reads the book to, for more on that. There's a whole lot of love in this book for soil and for the tiny trillions of bacteria, fungi and neglected critters in it and for people via the small pleasurable things that we can each do to heal soils and to even help our neighbours' soils via those travelling hyphal threads. If you love it, you'll care for it. That's what a really good friend of mine says about land care and her farm. And that seems a big part of what your storytelling, Matthew, is all about. Can I, can I just, I know we're sort of well into the chat, but can I ask you now that the book's out to sort of reflect on, is it the storytelling that drives you or the change that you want to see? Or is it intimately yin and yang? What, what, what drives you? The, the whole, most of what I've done with my life, I guess, is to you know, whether it's writing about restaurants or cooking for people or writing about food is to make change. So we've done, I've done documentaries for SBS and it's about informing people so that they can make change in their life. So the main aim was to get people to care about soil. I just really want people to really get excited about soil, to care about it, to care about its fate. And because it's so utterly, utterly remarkable and it's full of great stories, and I, I just want people to know about it, then, then we can nourish it. So the storytelling comes because soil is pretty ugly and you, you shouldn't be able to see it. And if you can see it, it's dying. And because the life in soil is invisible, we need to use this beautiful thing that humans have, and that's our imagination. So it's, it's through storytelling that we can get soil into people's minds because otherwise it's just brown stuff that gets under your nails you know, that you sweep out of the corners of your house or whatever. It's not, you know, it's, it, it can't speak for itself. If you sit under a waterfall, you can appreciate the waterfall. You can walk in a rainforest, you can smell the rainforest, inhale it. If you, if you go diving on the Great Barrier Reef, you can, you can see the wondrous ecosystem you're in and you can care about it. But soil doesn't have that luxury. So we have to tell its stories. Mm. Can I just add to the storytelling aspect um, of, of soil? So in ancient times, we thought of, soil and the earth as usually female but as a goddess it was called mother earth Um, and with industrialization we sort of threw that out the window and relied on human ingenuity as being far superior to some of these ancient stories but actually those ancient stories weren't just quaint metaphors they were really true because now what we know is that soil is alive it does actually literally breathe and we can, or Matthew can spend an entire book outlining how soil is alive, or we can go back to thinking of the earth as Mother Earth, which is just a very simple way of conceiving the soil that gives us life. I was listening to an interview with Tyson Yunker Porter, and he said, Oh, well, everybody knows when you 
cook, you harvest a root vegetable that you must cover up the hole in Mother Earth. Um, and if you think about it, <laughs> I can give you a whole page of how when you harvest a carrot, you need to add some more compost and you need to immediately transplant another plant in there. So there's always living roots in the ground in order to feed the microbes. And we know those microbes are there because we have electron microscopes and we have DNA sequencing. Or I can say, when you harvest a carrot, you need to cover it up so that you cover up the hole in Mother Earth. Um, and that is a really beautiful story that if you conceive of the Earth as a living organism, then we will take better care of it. And that kind of ties into the whole storytelling. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I had in my notes somewhere something about sentient landscapes and I love the way Tyson Yunkenporter talks about sentient landscapes and and absolutely akin and sympathetic with what you're saying. And and in particular in, you know, First Peoples cultures where he talks about how a key, a high energy area of sentient landscapes, if you like, are rocks, you know, and we neglect, like there's a whole other story about rocks and Matthew, your book spells out the role of rocks in creating soil and where they feature. So, yes, this idea of sentience and being sentient about what is there, goodness. So such a key part to storytelling and letting us see, to actually relate to to what is currently not seen. It's just beautiful. Mm. And I suppose on the flip side, how do we get here? How do we get to this mess without being depressing about it but I'm a historian at heart so I kind of like digging back into that stuff so I was really fascinated in the book like all good dramas or storytelling and the health and future of soils is certainly that there are some fascinating villains some very well-meaning 20th century heroes sad legacies and a mix of visionaries missionaries some zealous some not but all helping to get biology the livingness back into how we think and act for soil I was especially fascinated by Mr Haber Matthew, can you tell us the story of Haber, a pretty wicked villain, really, and about the train wrecks he was responsible for, for humanity in World War One, and then pretty much systems-wide for healthy soils and ecosystems around the world in the 20th century. Um, he's a villain. It's a sad story, but it's it's inspiring for how we can turn things around radically as well. Yeah, so so soil has, has been imperiled through a few things, and most of it's been people trying to do the right thing. But Fritz Haber, I think, is a little bit of a villain. So Fritz Haber, um, in the early um, 1900s, uh, in late 1800s, we already knew that one of the macronutrients for plants to grow bigger, quicker, was nitrogen. If we could harvest nitrogen and put it on plants, we knew they'd get big quicker. And we used to use saltpetre, so that's um, not, uh, sodium nitrate, concentrated forms of nitrate within the soil. And they would mine that. But they also knew that the atmosphere, the, the air that we breathe, is um, nearly 80% nitrogen. And so if, if you could take that very stable nitrogen that's in the air and get it into a form the plants could use, then you could grow plants much bigger, much quicker. A whole bunch of people were trying to work out how to do this. Fritz Haber, a German scientist, came up with a method, demonstrated it, I think it was about 1909, the first time. And within a very short period of time, um, Karl Bosch, uh, he industrialised the process. It was known as the Haber-Bosch um, process. And what that does is you burn vast amounts of energy, it's usually natural gas, and use a catalyst, and you can take nitrogen from the air and turn it into um, reactive nitrogen, so ammonia, um, something like that, that you can use um, uh, on plants and um, so that was that was great news um, it's also nit- nitrates and um, saltpeter were really some people might remember this um, saltpeter was used to make gunpowder and so nitrates in a reactive form are really good for explosives and so there was this interest in nitrogen for that reason as well now so Fritz Haber came up with this form of nitrogen just before the first world war during the First World War, the Germans had the capacity to, to create reactive nitrogen, so they used that capacity to um, start making bombs, essentially. Fritz Haber used his chemical experience to come up with um, chemicals. He was the first person to create mustard gas and use it in, in warfare. I think, they, I think you know, thousands of people died in, in the space of a few minutes and um, when they first used it uh, in France. Um, the Germans first used chemi- chemical warfare in France. After the First World War, you know, they had this ability to create reactive nitrogen I think that the, the Haber 
wash process, they, one of the slogans they used was bread from air. So essentially you could grow bread, you know, you grow wheat to, to, to make bread using um, nitrogen produced in the air. Fritz Haber, though, he spent his in-between years coming up with other poison gases and he came up with a thing called Zyklon B. Zyklon B was used in the gas chambers, Hitler's gas chambers in the Second World War um, and, and used to kill at least a million people. After the mustard gas attack in France, his wife committed suicide a week later. She was also a chemist, and I think she couldn't live with the fact that this guy had created such a harmful weapon. Anyway, um, Fritz Haber, you know, Zyklon B killed over a million people in in the gas chambers. Uh, he was a Jew himself, and he 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 died in exile in Switzerland. You know, he managed to to create a poison gas that killed that many people. The, the artificial nitrogen that he's created has um, allowed the growing of crops in areas that wouldn't otherwise grow. About one in two mouthfuls uh, that humans eat around the globe is a result of the um, artificial nitrogen that Fritz Haber has managed to extract from air. But I don't think he was a particularly nice guy. I think he, you know, someone who spends their in-between war years coming up with poison gases uh, is probably not a particularly nice guy. The nitrogen he created wasn't to destroy the world generally. I think most of it was to, to actually use in agriculture. Um, but what it's done to soil nitrogen, artificial nitrogen added to soil, which is what we generally do to grow crops around the globe, particularly in uh, Western countries, has impoverished soil, killed soil life uh, and has been bad for soil structure and uh, and for the health of the soil globally. So even the thing that wasn't a poison gas was used to either make bombs or to has ruined soil. Yeah, and it fueled what, what some people call fossil fuel food capitalism, didn't it? Because it looked like it was this miracle coming from the air for free, but, of course, the embodied energy has been devastating. Yeah. Mm. Okay. But the good news is that now there are so many farmers, urban and home gardeners and groups, agroecologists and regenerative farming practices, scales, movements and ideas really taking off in all sorts of different ways and having their various debates, um, but who are giving soil the attention it deserves. We could talk about them for hours, but we can't hear, so I just encourage everyone to get out and read the book. But Haber's story is really key in how we think about climate change and how industrial agriculture has contributed massive, massively to anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions over the past 100 years plus, and that in some sectors, intensive input agriculture is still making, and perhaps we might just think about Mr Gates's current forays into African agriculture. But it's also a story that helps frame the incredible opportunities for positive change that can be made fast with a will and a way. I've already mentioned Stefan Lafol and his idea of 0.4% more organic carbon into the soil to turn us away from runaway global emissions. So Sadie and Matthew, <laughs> thinking climate change and agriculture and the big picture, can I ask you what might be your one or two key take-home messages about key actions that you'd like to see happen right now to radically reduce greenhouse gas emissions from large-scale agriculture and across our rangelands that will make a difference and that you think offer real hope? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think just to finish the Fritz Haber conversation, I think weaning ourselves off synthetic nitrogen uh, yeah. is certainly one one path yeah. to take. What's your biggie? Um, uh, look, for me, the, the big one is um, that we start to see soil as a living organism um, again. We kind of knew that historically and or, or intuitively and, and then we kind of forgot it and went, okay, well, we've got the machinery, we've got the chemicals, we can just grow whatever we want, wherever we want pretty much as, as long as we get enough rain and we've got enough nitrogen and that has impoverished soil. So it, 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 once we frame soil as a living entity, and see it as a living entity and how to nourish it, that's when farming changes. That's when growing changes. Yeah, and I think too um, to think in, the, in a much longer term than we currently think. Um, I think we are very used to, because it's, when white settlers came to Australia, white settlers have only been here for 200 years and we brought European-style farming, Middle Eastern-style farming with us and never occurred to us to think, long term what we were doing to the soil here we just plonked ourselves down and started doing what, what we thought was best um, and I think there needs to be a radical rethink along the lines of can we continue to grow food on this soil for the next 20 generations yeah absolutely that's so beautiful that's uh deep time deep time thinking you know uh Australia's Aboriginal people often speak about thinking at least seven generations ahead 
and back. <laughs> yeah. So, so Matthew, absolutely. Soil is a living entity, and 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 if that's prioritised, so many other things naturally flow from that. Whether it's diverse ground covers, uh, constant uh, mixed cropping, diverse pasture and crop, so on and so forth. But also, uh, I loved what Sadie said about the carrot out of the ground and then healing mother earth immediately afterwards that just relates so directly to the whole debate and process around tilling and direct seeding and so forth because things die when you break the soil don't they yeah and that's the thing that, that i guess we haven't really understood um in, obviously indigenous cultures did and um maybe lots of um cultures did around the world but i think it's one of the things that we forgot uh in in sort of our our the way australia has farmed and and, and europe we inherited our farming systems from Europe and, and that cutting open the ground, that yeah, the plough um, has done so much damage to land. And, um, you know, every time you cut the soil or break the soil and lift it and turn it, you, you know, you're essentially ruining the home of those billions of living things that, or trillions of living things that, that, um, that plants need to survive and soil needs to, uh, for structure. You know, we thought we were doing the right thing, um, but now we know better and we know um, that, that, you know, if we, if we cut, it's, it, you know, I, I think I refer to it in the book this way. If you think of the earth as like our body, if you cut it, you know, you bleed. If you, if you keep cutting it, you scar, you know, you, if you, um, you, you can damage um, uh, the earth very easily, um, but, but particularly you can damage it. Um, constant damage is, is, um, it can become irreparable and, and it's a bit like our own bodies in that sense that yeah. um, if you think of it as living, um, then you have more respect for it and, um, ways to care for it. That's right. And, and constant scars damages its resilience and obviously more carbon into the soil, more ability for life in the soil, but also the ability for soils to retain water and look after themselves in tough times of drought and extreme weather. So, yeah, that's a beautiful image of what of that complexity. Thank you for that. Dr Terry McCosker is someone who works with farmers on holistic grazing techniques and is an Australian leader in the science measurement and sequestration of soil carbon. And like you both, is a huge believer in the importance of the biology of soils and the need for paradigm change to that end. He also says that the big transitions we need can still involve fertilisers and chemicals, but only as select catalysts for biology to get more air, water and energy into the soils. Would you would you generally agree with that? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And Terry's work is quite quite remarkable. Yes, he's wonderful. Okay, I am moving towards the wrap here now, Matthew. Bear with me. <laughs> so there's such a real spectrum of views and practices to learn about and to journey with. It seems. At last, we now have a national soil strategy announced during the peak of the drought in 2019 and released in May this year, and it looks to be pretty well resourced. So soil is at last again on the national agenda. And Matthew, your book is a massive contribution to further build awareness and change for that. So bravo to you. Thank you. There's a fabulous quote near the end of the book that seems to wrap up the big picture. And Matthew, perhaps your key thoughts on and about food and future priorities. So I'm just going to read it out because it's pretty fabulous. Quoting a soil microbiologist, it starts, our issue with colonising the moon isn't that we don't have the technology. We know how to get there. The problem is that we don't even know how to grow food on earth yet. They're basically making the best land on this planet into the moon. Earth's reality is less Jetsons and more old MacDonald. Over the millennia, it has been hardwired into our noses and our guts that the best nutrition for us is encapsulated in a variety of things grown in healthy soil and consumed at their peak. We can chase the dream of interstellar missions of nutrients grown in sterile laboratories. We can believe the myth that no animal dies when we grow the peas for our impossible burger that we are genetically programmed to get all we need from air protein meals. Or we can rejoice in the innate beauty of a mixed farm, the wondrous complexity of a properly managed ecosystem that abounds with things that we can eat and that we are designed to eat. And that is good for the farmer and good for the farmed, good for both the land and the life it contains. Matthew, your book finishes with a really upbeat call to action that we all have to be ready to feed 10 billion souls and counting in less than three decades. And you provide real messages of hope that we can using the technologies and the mindsets you've outlined in your book. Bravo, yes. Small producers, gardeners and farmers around the world already do produce some 70% of food consumed on less than 20% of the world's land. Yeah, and they only use um, yeah, 30% of the inputs. So, you know, you've got... <laughs> Cut the people producing 30% uh, using 70% of the inputs. So, you know, the system 
has fundamental flaws, even though every area is different and every farm is different. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, I think many people increasingly realise that it's not just about producing more food, something like 30 to 40% of the world's food produced is wasted. And then there's the whole question of food loss, you know, in the process of getting to being produced. So, so thank you for that. Any final comments or further thoughts you'd like to share, Matthew? No, look, I think, I think, you know, I'm always just so excited. Anyone wants to talk mm. about soil. So I'm over the, over the moon. I'm over the moon. <laughs> no, I'm over the moon and back. <laughs> no, 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 you don't want to go to the moon. Yeah. But I, but I do think, I think that's, the, and that's the problem. We, we looked, we do, we looked to, to, you know, to the stars and it's so exciting. You know, it's, I read about it all the time, you know, you know, how exciting it is that we're going to, you know, we can, we can travel in, you know, into space or we can do this and that. And we look down and we're so bored. It's like, oh, someone's just, you know, someone's germinated a seed and, you know, grown a cabbage. Oh, how boring. That's actually what's fueled humanity. That's what's fueled civilization. That's what bred culture and built us into into what we are today so it might seem really boring but it's actually really important and and i think i guess what i what i'm hoping is that that um yeah you can you can you know do do your your satellite mission or your your, your space station missions or you can do whatever you know that doesn't matter you do whatever you want go after soil first because soil is what looks after us if we if we forget soil we are we are um yeah we we, we are we have the the risk of, of catastrophic um, damage to, to humanity. And I think that's why I get frustrated when we talk about, um, yeah, the Mars or the moon and how they've germinated a seed on the moon is, is that, you know, you're kind of forgetting the bit that has nourished us forever. And you've got to, we've got to look after that before we, we do the other things, which we can still do. We just have to look after soil first. It's our home. <laughs> yes, it is. Sadie and Matthew, my farmer dad, often said the black soils he loved and cared for were good enough to grow babies in. Mm. It was about as close to poetry as he was inclined to get, but I loved it. So thank you. I really enjoyed soils and speaking with you both so much. Thank you. Thank you heaps. Thanks, Anthea. Oh, Anthea, it's been such a pleasure. It's been lovely to finally meet you. Um, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Matthew's new book, Soil, The Incredible Story of What Keeps the Earth and Us Healthy, was released in July and is available at all good bookstores. Get to it. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.